Property owners desiring to discharge pollutants or to dredge and fill a wetland will undoubtedly trigger the Clean Water Act requirements and subsequent involvement with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and the Environmental Protection Agency. Landowners will often encounter an expensive and lengthy process when it comes to simply determining whether a wetland is present on their property. On this episode of EHS on Tap, we explore the recent U.S. Supreme Court decision, Army Corps of Engineers versus Hawks, and what the ruling means for the future of wetland permitting. On this episode, what Hawks means for wetland determinations, we speak with attorney and water expert Stan Milan with the law firm Jones Walker in New Orleans about the most recent development in the ongoing regulatory and legal dispute over wetland regulations. Mr. Milan has been practicing environmental law before courts and agencies for over 40 years. He also teaches law students the ever-involving environmental law arena. Stan's legal expertise extends to wetlands, which we will hear about today. Welcome back to the podcast, Stan. Thank you, Emily, and congratulations on your uh, wedding. (laughs) Thank you very much. So today we're going to focus on a recent decision by the United States Supreme Court, known as U.S. Army Corps of Engineers versus Hawks. This opinion is a continuation of Episode 1 of EHS on Tap, where we discuss wetlands and the highly controversial water of the United States, or WOTUS regulations. Let's revisit the main issues and lay the foundation for our listeners. What is a wetland, and what are the characteristics that qualify a wetland, as indeed a wetland, Stan? Well, of course, the Clean Water Act covers more than just wetlands, and it doesn't necessarily cover ever, every wetland. But uh, a starting point is, what is a wetland under the, the federal definitions? Uh, in, in layman's terms, a wetland is a marsh, bog, swamp, or a similar area. Now, the Corps of Engineers may go out into areas with depressions uh, that trap water and call those areas wetlands, too. Uh, But uh, they have a definition in the regulations, and I'll I'll read part of the definition, which is somewhat stilted, but it's it's a starting point. Uh, This federal government defines uh, wetlands for purposes of the Clean Water Act as areas inundated or saturated by surface or groundwater at a frequency and duration sufficient to support and that under normal circumstances do support uh, a prevalence of vegetation typically adapted for life in saturated soil conditions. So we have three factors, uh, vegetation, uh, soils, and hydrology. Uh, Vegetation is based on lists that the agencies have compiled, and they mainly focus on hydrophytic vegetation, that is aquatic or semi-aquatic vegetation, like, like cypress trees, tupelo gum trees, etc. And they focus on hydric soils, like clays, and they fer- focus on flooding or hydrology or periodic inundation, which is observed flooding, drift lines, watermarks on trees, etc. So those three factors are what uh, wetland scientists use to determine whether an area is a wetland under the regulations or not. And uh, uh, that's a starting point for the regulations. So, uh, and, and the Corps uses a manual, the 1987 manual, as well as their regulations in, in, in classifying areas of wet or not wet. Uh, and, and I think that's the starting point. So the Clean Water Act, what you just mentioned, if they find these three factors and a wetland is on your, per, on your property, 
the Clean Water Act requires a permit to discharge the pollutants or to dredge and fill these certain lands. Can you help flesh this out a little bit about how wetlands are regulated and perhaps the common headaches of obtaining a Clean Water Act permit? Sure. Um, well, Section 404 of the Clean Water Act, and uh, two states have, have the authority transferred to them, uh, has a special uh, set of regulations for the development of wetlands. Uh, you know, we went from a paradise to a parking lot is the song, and that's really <laughs> what is behind the scenes here. But if, if you have a regulated wetland or other regulated water, uh, the fact that it's a wetland is only uh, a starting point because the wetland has to be adjacent to or contiguous with flowing waters, rivers, lakes, streams, or have a significant nexus to those uh, water bodies. Uh, uh, nexus is a connection perhaps between the wetland and the, and the navigable water through a tributary. The role of ditches is questionable in the equation. But if you're regulated, you have a wetland and it's adjacent to a navigable waterway uh, and you want to develop the area, uh, like the Hawks wanted to use that wetland area for mining purposes, and a companion case, Kent Recycling, they wanted to use the wetland area for a landfill, permits are needed. But a, a variety of situations may call for permits. But the first permit is the Section 404 permit under the Clean Water Act which requires an application, meetings, public notice, agency uh, reviews, and eventually a permit. But the permit is not like a fishing license. It's lengthy and expensive. But along with the federal 404 permit comes, in most states, a state water quality certificate, which also has to be applied for and granted. And in conjunction with the federal permitting, the agencies have to comply with the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, which requires uh, various types of environmental studies and assessments called environmental assessments, and sometimes environmental impact statements. And then depending on what's at your site, you may have, through the agencies, Endangered Species Act coordination, such as for the black bear, uh, et cetera. And if there are some uh, older properties or artifacts uh, the federal permit process also triggers other statutes like the National Historic Preservation Act. And of course, uh, there are comments from other agencies and the public, which the Corps has to evaluate. Uh, and at the end of the process comes mitigation, which is usually a factor multiple of what you're developing. For instance, if you're developing 10 acres of wetlands that are evaluated to be high quality, you may have to, through a private project or a mitigation bank, uh, acquire rights to three or four times that to mitigate for the impacts you're undertaking. So it's a lengthy process, sometimes one or two years or more, very costly. Now, not every permit is that involved, but the, the bigger permit applications are. So that whole process can involve headaches for the landowner. Okay, and so getting back to what went on in the Hawks case, I was wondering if you could help us understand sort of the beginning of the permitting process, um, which comes down to the United States Army Corps of Engineers 
making a jurisdictional determination that there is or is not a wetland on your property. Can you kind of um, explain to us the two different types of jurisdictional determinations and what they mean for a specific property owner that, say, would like to develop their property? Yes, the, 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 these jurisdictional determinations, popularly called JDs, uh, are in two types. Now, the types are discussed uh, not in the regulations uh, strictly, but more in a regulatory guidance memo in 2008 by the uh, Corps of Engineers, and they define two types of uh, jurisdictional determinations which are basically agency wetland calls, usually. The first is an approved jurisdictional determination, which is an official agency determination of a water of the United States or if an area is not. Now, that, those are good for five years. Those can be administratively appealed if the landowner is displeased with the breadth of the wetland call to uh, the Corps of Engineers. and. Um, uh, now, after the Hawks case, they, uh, if the landowner is still displeased after an appeal, uh, he or she can sue judicially over whether the call is the wetland call is arbitrary or not. Now, a preliminary uh, jurisdictional determination is non-binding on the agencies. It's it's uh, just it's guidance on an area may be regulated or not, and so it's not, not final in any sense. Uh, if a landowner wants to appeal the preliminary call because he doesn't like it, uh, in that situation, that person has to wait until the entire permit process unfolds at the end and then challenge it, and often that's too late in the process to do any good because they've gone through all the coordination and reports required for the permit and uh, they're basically stuck. But those are the two types of uh, jurisdictional determinations. And in the layman terms, the basic difference is if a landowner really has questions about the regulation, they'll make sure their wetland report, that's the first step. The applicant submits a wetland report preliminarily saying what they think about the area and the agencies make the final call through this JD process. But uh, the uh, the wetland report by the landowner's consultant starts things off. And uh, in that report, they should document issues like a lack of significant nexus, et cetera, if they really want to build a record to challenge the call. Uh, preliminary JD, basically landowners just uh, estimate with their consultant how much will likely be wet and whether the landowner can live with that, and, and the consultant basically uses the three factors, soils, hydrology, and vegetation, to, to present to the Corps an estimate and a map of what uh, they consider to be regulated, and the Corps concurs in that or not. But there's no real effort to challenge. The, the effort is basically to try to concede enough to make the Corps happy and go on with the permit process. And that, that's not immediately reviewable in court or anything, the preliminary JD. So the approved jurisdictional determination, which you just mentioned, is really relevant from the Hawks case because the, the United States Supreme Court said that it is now um, reviewable in court once you have an approved 
an official just jurisdictional determination. And I just wanted to explore some of the facts of the case and the merits of the recent Hawks decision. And this lawsuit was brought by a, I think, three groups of private companies in Minnesota that are involved in the peat industry. And peat is an organic material that is common in waterlogged or saturated land. And the material is often used to boost nutrients in soil or can also be used as a fuel source. And the companies here wanted to expand their industry to a nearby 530-acre tract, which is really why we're here in this podcast today. So if you're mining peat, you're usually dealing with wetlands and the Clean Water Act. So I was hoping, Stan, that you could maybe discuss a little bit of how the court used these facts to come up with a decision um, that they recently uh, published. Well, Hawks uh, submitted its own uh, wetland report to the Corps and the district office, the field office, uh, basically called a good bit of the site wetlands, estimating it would take one to two years for Hawks to get the permit and reports would be required in the $100,000 plus range and mitigation, et cetera, hadn't even been discussed yet. Well, Hawks was unhappy with the district's call and so it did, it, it, got a, it, it did get an approved JD, it asked for the whole nine yards. Uh, uh, Hawks appealed administratively to the next higher Corps of Engineers Office of Division which did raise some questions for the district engineer, but on remand administratively, the district still approved the jurisdictional determination of finding there was a significant nexus between Hawk site and the Red River of the North, which was over 100 miles away. So Hawks was still displeased, but they had a choice to suffer through the whole permit process and then challenge that, and of course that would be in vain basically at that point. Or do I try to sue early on? And, and they were still in the process. This, this was probably eight or nine months into the initial process before they got into court to challenge the uh, approved and final jurisdictional determination, which the court found was final and, uh, and, and final agency action and, and reviewable. So uh, Hawks was basically stuck. Go ahead with the permit or try to fight it. And uh, they, they fought it once. So uh, they're, they're the first ones in that category that I'm aware of in the Supreme Court decision. So just to build on that, Justice Roberts delivered the opinion of the Hawks case recently. And he mentions, um, he refers back to the Rapanos case in 2006 and, and how costly and expensive um, as well as lengthy the processes to even review a jurisdictional determination or JD. Why do you think this is this is the case? Why do you think it's so expensive and lengthy and to, to even get a jurisdictional determination? Well, I mean, before the Hawks case, uh, whatever you, JD you obtained, a final or preliminary one, uh, you were stuck with the permit process. If you had a approved JD, uh, even if you appealed it, you couldn't then challenge in court so you went through the whole permit process, which in a big case could be two or more years. Uh, if you had a preliminary JD, well, that wasn't administratively appealable or you had any rights on that. Uh, and again, until the very end, then you could administratively appeal when a profit permit is, or a draft permit is offered to you 
and then after the permit process was over, if you didn't like the, the call, then you could sue. Uh, uh, I think a basic problem with the statute is it doesn't give any deadline. Uh, there's a deadline for the Corps of Engineers issuing a public notice for comment on a permit application within 15 days after the application is uh, considered by the agency as being complete. But there's no other deadlines as to how uh, as to how long the permit process would take, even though they may give the Corps give 30 days for people to comment or 30 days for agencies to comment again and again. But that seems to go on forever because there's no one mandate uh, or deadline in the statute except for the public public notice. And uh, the lack of a deadline and the complexity of the permit process allows it to build and build and build. And that's why in, in the more complex cases, it does take two years or more to go from beginning to end. And before the Hawks case, you had to wait till the end, regardless of what data you, you had, to consider suing over it. And then it's basically often too late. So after the Hawks decision, what do you think the decision means for the future of wetlands permitting? Well, the Hawks case does give landowners an option early on if they have serious doubts from the get-go that their property should not really be extensively regulated uh, under the 404 process. And those landowners in a position to do that would make sure they consultant documents the initial or preliminary wetland report submitted to the core well, uh, do an administrative appeal if they're not happy, and then they have the legal option, of course, we're already talking about eight or nine months into a, a process, to sue in court. Uh, and hopefully, if they have a good administrative record, to challenge the adjacency or the uh, significant nexus finding by the core. It would be more difficult for a landowner to challenge the area that doesn't have wetland vegetation, doesn't have hybrid soils, and is not flooded if those facts are concrete. But on the more ephemeral issues about adjacency and significant nexus, those issues could be challenged in court. Now, we do have a companion case to uh, uh, Hawks, and that's Kent Recycling, which came up from the Fifth Circuit. Uh, that case dealt with a agricultural site, uh, a prior converted cropland that uh, Bell wanted to, and that was the plaintiff at the district court level, wanted to develop into a landfill. And during the years right before that, the agencies, Department of Agriculture and Corps of Engineers, changed their policy on what is known as prior converted cropland, which is before a certain date, if an area was in agriculture and became non-wet because of that, it was not regulated. But the policy change was, unless the area does become regulated, if the use changes from agriculture to something else, like a landfill. So uh, 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 Kent Recycling took over the case, but they were concerned that the Corps of Engineers was regulating this landfill area, which they hoped to develop, uh, even though it was a former problem. And uh, the Fifth Circuit uh, found that uh, that uh, approved and final JD, they appealed administratively too early on, was not uh, not judicially reviewable until the end of the permit process, and the Supreme Court denied certiorari in that uh, before they got 
that the Hawks case, uh, after the Hawks case was filed, the Supreme Court sent recycling files for reconsideration, which just on June 6th, I believe they got, after the Hawks case was decided and the Supreme Court remanded Kent Recycling back to the Fifth Circuit to render a decision not inconsistent with Hawks. So that's, that obviously not only suggests it means that the Hawks decision is nationwide uh, as, as the regulations and agency policies exist today that if a landowner gets an approved JD and, and, and pursues an administrative appeal to make it final, they can early on challenge the wetland call in, in court in those circumstances. Not so for a preliminary JD or if you have no JD at all and you just want to challenge things before you even talk to the agency. But with an approved JD, and, and you have to ask for that in a letter. We, here's our report, we want an approved JD, jurisdictional determination, to get the ball game going for a Hawks case type of relief. So yes, it is nationwide, in my opinion, unless the agencies change something. Okay, Stan, so you also mentioned earlier the memorandum of agreements that the EPA and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers have published. There's one in 1980 and one in, I believe, 1988. Each agreement discusses the agency's representative roles in making jurisdictional determinations. So what is the significance of the MOAs, and did the Supreme Court in the Hawks case rely on either of these MOAs? Well, Justice Roberts, in oral argument, uh, referenced these uh, memorandum of agreements or MOAs between the EPA and the Corps because they did say that the agencies agreed that uh, uh, the Corps, once it makes an approved jurisdictional determination, uh, both agencies would rely on that as the government's position. And, and uh, so Justice Roberts hit on the... Uh, Solicitor General, when he was arguing it was not final, J.D. was not final, he used these memos, and of course the Department of Justice merely said, well, we can always change that. But yes, Justice Robert and Robertson footnotes mentioned the MOAs and, and relied on them in part for his opinion. Uh, not, not every justice agreed with that uh, position but uh, we do have an issue of whether a change to those MOAs could affect how the Hawks case applies to future jurisdictional calls. So if the existing MOAs are binding on the agencies, couldn't the EPA or the Army Corps of Engineers simply defy the Supreme Court and possibly just write a new or revised memorandum of agreement based on the Hawks decision? Well. Sure, it's like a 400-pound gorilla that can do what they want. <laughs> but uh, how the court would view that is not clear because four justices didn't necessarily agree that the MOAs were the be-all and end-all of what a jurisdictional determination is. And Justice Kennedy, Thomas, Alito, and Ginsburg didn't agree on that point with uh, Justice Roberts. And... Uh, uh, so yes, the agencies could rewrite the MOAs, but I mean, the problem is if, if the EPA wants to take on more of a role in determining what the wetland or not, they really nationwide don't have the staff, and I would think expertise to do that. The Corps of Engineers has been set up for 
preliminary JDs, guidance only, which is not final, a binding, and if somebody wants to challenge that, they do have to wait and go through the permit process to the end to challenge it. So that, that's a fear that was discussed in oral argument, but uh, Justice Kennedy in particular in a concurrent opinion in Hawks stated that uh, there may be due process concerns if the Corps and EPA eliminate the issuance of approved JDs. So I don't think it's clear cut that the agency gets a, a free ride by rewriting the ju jurisdiction of the, the MOA, uh, but that remains to be seen. Yeah, you mentioned Justice Kennedy's concurring opinion, and I just wanted to reflect back on the Rapanos decision where Justice Kennedy wrote the famous concurring opinion there and the significant nexus language that indubitably shaped the regulatory landscape as we now know it, did Justice Kennedy's concurring opinion in Hawks have any special significance? Well, to me, uh, since he is the author of the significant nexus uh, gospel, I guess we'll call it that, from <laughs> Apanos in 2006, uh, the, and the agencies are using significant nexus in, in the WOTUS or clean water rule that we discussed uh, last month uh, to arguably expand jurisdiction. They may not want to anger him because he, 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 he is the author of significant nexus. He's their friend on that, I, I think. But he, his uh, views in the concurrent opinion indicated he might not remain so friendly. So they, the agencies do have that uh, to contend with. Uh, and I, I guess that's all we can say without speculating. Right. Also, to, to really wrap our heads around what this recent decision means, I want to dig a little deeper into what will happen now and in the future. So after Hawk, the Hawks decision, which gives the landowner with an approved jurisdictional determination to uh, the ability to go straight to court. Should landowners take heed and rush to litigate? Well, uh, it depends on their individual situation because we're dealing with uh, cost and delays of, uh, of litigation. Uh, if the landowner's uh, planning and finances support permitting a, a fairly large area of wetlands, including mitigation costs, and maybe they don't want to sue and just concede and go along with the process with the preliminary JD. But someone like Hawks and Kent Recycling, who have large areas that, uh, that are questionable in terms of regulation, uh, they, they, if they have the uh, resources to go through a uh, uh, a detailed report with the core and appeal, they should they should litigate. And, and the the thing is, the a court in reviewing an agency's wetland call or approved JD uh, doesn't like have a trial de novo and and hear experts out and make its own decision of what is a wetland or not. It determines the court does whether the agency's call is arbitrary and capricious or, on the other hand, reasonable. And that's based on the court's review of the administrative record. And uh, often it defers to technical expertise of agencies 
But when getting to issues like significant nexus and the lack of adjacency, uh, which are issues more easily understood, I think by a court with a good landowner wetlands report, those those issues can be uh, uh, brought in, in court. But you know, straight to court is sort of begging the question because landowner may have a good eight or nine months dealing with the core to be able to get there, uh, well short of a permit process. Right. So they have to document the file. So even fleshing this out even a little bit further, hypothetically, a landowner after the Hawks decision could technically hedge their bets by both suing the Army Corps of Engineers and applying for a permit. Do you think that this is a potentially uh, likely scenario? Well, I mean, uh, that's hypothetically true, but uh, uh, and it depends on cost. Uh, again, litigation is not fast or cheap, uh, and neither are permits. Uh, if, if one goes to court with the permit process pending, a court may view the ongoing permit process as adequate and stay the case until a decision is made by the court. Right. Or the court itself, if, if there's an application pending and a lawsuit pending, uh, may continue to ask landowners for reports, et cetera, which the landowner may wish to delay on, and the agency might just, after 30 days or so of a request, say, we're returning your permit application because you're not cooperating and we consider it withdrawn. Past practice has been that many landowners prefer to suffer through the permit process, uh, and that depends on their resources. So there's no clear answer, but I would think personally doing both scenarios, lawsuit and permit, simultaneously may double the landowner's trouble. But uh, I would think that uh, any landowner that wants to sue in court makes sure that the uh, the preliminary wetland report they submit to the Corps from the get-go not only discusses hydrology, uh, soils, and vegetation, but go into Justice Kennedy's recitation of significant nexus. Now, this is not as broad as the agency's discussion in the WOTUS rule, which is too broad, or in their earlier guidance, which is too broad, but Justice Kennedy only mentioned three factors. Uh, the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of the nation's waters. Because remember, we're protecting the wetlands not per se to protect them, but to protect the flowing waters to which they're connected. Uh, so on chemical, the landowner would have to have a consultant address, do any pollutants leave the site and flow into the navigable waters? If it's just mud and dirt, do test samples show that they're, they're benign and just background uh, constituents only exist like metals. On physical, uh, questions like does the water flow from the site into navigable waters? More importantly, how far is the reach? Uh, is there evidence of erosion bank lines on the way? Does rainwater pond and evaporate before reaching them? Does the site store floodwaters? How much? And finally, Biological, what type of habitat does the site serve? Is it a flyway, a bird sanctuary? Is it adjacent to one? Is there development surrounding the site? Development intervening between the site and truly navigable waters miles away? So uh, no site is an island on Earth, but any downstream connection between a site and navigable waters could be shown to be marginal. 
In other words, that would be an insignificant nexus, which wouldn't justify regulation. But all that requires some effort by the consultant to go into detail, because it's more than just a wetland report on soil hydrology and, and vegetation. Right. So it sounds like there's a lot of time and effort, and you have to get in consultants involved to even go through uh, making a jurisdictional determination or even figuring out if there is a wetland on your property and the effects of potential navigable waters downstream or adjacent. That's all we have for uh, this episode of EHS on Tap. I'd like to thank uh, Stan Land for his expertise on the matter. If listeners would like to follow up with Stan, he can be reached at S-M-I-L-L-A-N at joneswalker.com. Thank you, Stan. Thank you.